0: Research Advocacy at Solving Kids Cancer in New York, and I'm on the research and family support teams for SKC in London. We're pleased to co-host this webinar with Jonathan Agin, Executive Director at the Max Cure Foundation. Jonathan is a lawyer, a key thought leader, and a force for good in this world since DIPG took his beautiful daughter, Alexis, in 2011. Jonathan will close out the webinar today with some final thoughts. Thank you all for joining us today to participate in this important discussion on the impact the pandemic is having on the pediatric cancer research enterprise. We all appreciate what a challenging and difficult time this is for families with children in treatment. Please write your questions anytime in the Q&A box and feel free to send questions after the webinar as well. We'll post the recording for you to share and view later. It's my pleasure to introduce our esteemed panel We have Dr. Peter Adamson, the former chair of the Children's Oncology Group and now global head of oncology development and pediatric innovation at Santa Fe. Dr. Jeff Aletta, director of the blood and marrow transplant program and the host defense and immunocompromised infectious diseases program at Nationwide Children's. Professor Pamela Kearns, She's the director of the Cancer Research UK Clinical Trials Unit in Birmingham and president of the European Society of Pediatric Oncology. Dr. Mark Kieran, the pediatric clinical trial lead at Bristol-Myers Squibb. Dr. Carol Field, the deputy chief at the NCI Pediatric Oncology Branch. And we're very grateful to have Dr. Tim Kripe as our moderator for the discussion. Dr. Kripe is the chief of hematology and oncology at Nationwide Children's and has a special expertise in virology and oncolytic viruses. He's the host of the popular podcast This Week in Pediatric Oncology, or TWIPO, and has produced over 70 podcasts you can find on iTunes or on SKC's website. Now I'll turn it over to you, Tim.
1: Thank you, Donna. It's a pleasure to be here today. As you know, we've got a nice a collaborative relationship over the years, producing those podcasts and now a couple of webinars. And I realize we also share with Nationwide Children's Hospital, the symbol of the butterfly. Uh, And I'm not coming to you from across the hospital. That's the beauty of Zoom, but rather from my study at home, as we all are. But it's a pleasure to be here with such esteemed colleagues. And so we have a lot of topics to discuss in a short amount of time. So I want to get to them. We're going to cover current and future cancer care services, clinical research, emerging therapies, funding, life sciences industry role in pediatric cancer R&D, translational research, and hopefully we'll end on some positive notes, like perhaps talking about some silver linings of how the world will change for pediatric cancer patients and and pediatric cancer research following this whole uh, crazy pandemic thing. So why don't we just jump into the uh, first topic, which is about uh, current care and how that's being modified. And uh, there's just been a position paper that's in press now in pediatric blood and cancer put together by leaders of a lot of the different international cooperative groups. And uh, I'm wondering if we could just briefly talk about uh, some of the challenges that we're encountering and some of the things we're doing about that. And um, maybe Peter, you're on mute, um, but thank you for coming off mute. Maybe uh, you could get started with that as the recent former chair of COG and what your thoughts are either about that position paper or about um, how the world has changed at the moment.
2: Well, well, thanks, Tim. And it's certainly a pleasure to be here joining everyone. And uh, I, I've recently moved, so I'm coming up to speed in the new, a new environment while I, uh, I'm obviously staying in, in, in close touch. I think you know very briefly speaking with my my colleagues as far as what's happening clinically before jumping into clinical research and and Tim uh, don't hesitate to put me back in the direction you want but um, you know I think it obviously has changed how clinical medicine is being performed in pediatric oncology uh, as well a lot more telemedicine um, how we actually interface with families uh, and so forth. So there may be some silver linings, ultimately, when we come out as, you know, what can we do to uh, lessen the burden um, for children with cancer as far as coming in uh, for clinical care, what actually might be done over as effectively over telemedicine where people don't have to travel but can be in their own homes. But clearly it will take some time uh, for that to evolve. From a clinical research perspective right now, at least the data broadly at the children 's oncology group, not surprisingly uh, it, is, uh, it is having a negative impact and as far as our accrual is concerned, um, and a lot of this is is a combination of uh, centers really prioritizing what can they do in this new environment, um, how can they make uh, things work, staff impacted, and so forth so that, uh, I think, is, is, is the highest-level, broad, negative impact that we're seeing. Um, I anticipate, as we enter into um, the new environment, I don't think it's going to be really a, a post-COVID environment where we have a strict cutoff that now we're post-COVID. I think it is just going to be a new environment that we have to deal with for some time uh we anticipate that that uh we'll begin to see improvement there as systems are in place where we can again take on the additional burden of uh of, of research um but let me pause there and turn it over to you and others
1: yeah no that's great thank you for starting us off and there was uh, again to reiterate donna's initial comment please post any questions in the q a session there was one about it being recorded yes it's being recorded so you'll be able to watch this later on Solving Kids Cancer website. So we appreciate that. Jeff, maybe um, you're active in the clinic. Uh, Maybe you could make it just a few comments about how care is being impacted uh, today and um, then we'll go to Pam.
3: Thanks, Tim. Uh, Peter, nice job. I I would agree with what what Peter says. I I think from a a perspective of the way things work now uh, in terms of anticipating going to the hospital, we need to let people know of a couple things. Number one is they'll be receiving phone calls from clinic prior to even going to clinic, asking them and uh, inquiring rather about their symptoms and if their child has symptoms as well. Um, That may then, the answer may set along a decision tree in terms of where the caregiver and their child then goes. Uh, Will they go directly to clinic or will they go to a testing center with regards to getting tested for SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID-19. Um, but realize that not every child who has respiratory symptoms is going to have SARS-CoV-2. Um, as a matter of fact, epidemiologically, uh, that's going to vary very uh, frequently across centers. So, for example, here in Columbus, yes, we have seen COVID-19 we have seen less in pediatrics and that's probably a general statement also to kind of note than in adults. So even though your child may have respiratory symptoms, he or she may not always necessarily have COVID. Going back, you know, if he or she presents to a clinic with respiratory symptoms, your child may then be isolated and and staff may wear what's called positive protective equipment, masks and gowns and Um, And also face shields. uh, So that's something else to expect. But I think the biggest thing is do not, absolutely do not refrain from calling your primary oncology care team during this time. Um, That is something that we all of us would definitely want to encourage every family to do with stay in touch and to definitely uh, let us help you out in terms of follow up.
1: Jeff, that's a great point. We've heard some stories out of the UK, particularly that maybe adults, maybe not as much children, I don't know, uh, in terms of them not seeking care or maybe let, letting diagnoses be delayed, uh, being concerned about going in to uh, expose themselves potentially to the virus. And uh, Pam, what, what's going on in your neck of the woods in terms of that or, or just clinical care in genu- general?
4: Um, thank you very much for inviting me uh, into this. I, I I don't think the situation in the UK in terms of how we're managing the care of children with cancer is so different from what I hear from Jeff, to be honest. Um, I think globally, there, there does seem, there is a concern that perhaps there are, is a delay in presentation of children with cancer for exactly the, the reason that you said, that people are frightened. They're frightened if they go to the hospital, they might be exposed to COVID, or they're worried in some cases about even bothering the doctors who are all terribly busy looking after COVID-19 patients. I think a really important message is that just is not true. If you have a child that you're worried about, whether, whatever the symptom, then, then you need to be contacting the doctors straight away. And the services are still there. They're still running. And um, the hospitals haven't closed down. The general pediatrics is still functioning as normal, um, as are the pediatric oncology centers. The difference is when you get there, there will be some... Uh, obvious changes. So for example, your physician may well be wearing a mask. If uh, you have respiratory symptoms, you'll be tested for COVID. And if there is a suspicion of positivity, then yeah, you do see the big face shields. But ultimately, and, and actually hospitals are, are very well divided now. So if patients have um, COVID-19, their so-called red areas, hot areas, um, and they are separated from where patients are being managed without COVID-19. So the services are running, but they are adapting to the fact that we have to deal with a very difficult virus. So um, I reiterate the the points that both Jeff and Peter said, we are in a different environment in terms of telemedicine. So many of my follow-up clinics now uh, for routine clinical care um, where patients are, you know, perhaps just receiving a scan result or a a, a symptom follow-up that is being done by telemedicine. And it'll be interesting to see how much we continue to do that in future. That is a, a question for the future. But for patients either needing to receive chemotherapy or investigations, scans or blood tests, the hospitals are functioning normally um, within the caveats of the, the PPE, the, the, the protection. But otherwise, I think a really important message that needs to come out from this webinar is that patients are getting standard normal care with in the most part, very little modification. Um, And and it's really important that parents and children are reassured by that.
1: One of the major points of this position paper that's coming out is that under-resourced countries might not be able to provide the same standard of care or level of care. Are there any things at your hospital that aren't being provided, um, or that have more limited access for, for patients because of COVID?
4: I think the only um, question that we're being asked is to review, for example, follow-up uh, imaging um, and whether the timing of the imaging needs can be adjusted, particularly for children that need general anesthetics, um, where uh, at the peak of the COVID crisis, there were some pressures on the, the anesthetic services, but actually on the whole, very few scans have been uh, been altered and we've managed to proceed pretty much as normal. There was also a question for a while, a lot of consideration about transplant services um, and whether they would need to be limited so as that intensive care beds weren't being occupied if, if needed. But in fact, again, you know, I was on call this weekend, our transplant unit is full as it always is. Um, and uh, apart from the additional uh, masks and protective uh, uh, and precautions that are ongoing, uh, pretty much it was serviced
1: as normal. And can you tell us about the use of telemedicine in UK? Vicki Bunger from CAC2 asked a question online about that increasing uh, health disparities because not everyone may have access to the internet, et cetera. What's your experience with telemedicine now?
4: Um, to be honest, uh, uh, you're right. And I think uh, a lot of my clinic at the moment has been done with the good old telephone. Um, we haven't had to necessarily go on to Zoom or GoToMeet or FaceTime. Um, although a couple of patients have FaceTimed me by preference, um, but mostly uh, because it's routine discussions, um, it's been by, by telephone. So there's, there's been very little uh, limitation on people being able to access what's needed. And when patients need to be seen and actually physically examined, then we arrange them to come up to the hospital.
1: Great. I'd like to move on to the clinical research. Uh, Peter touched on that a bit. And I guess while we're still in the UK, can you tell us what's happening with research there?
4: Oh, that's, that's a bigger challenge. So um, I, as you know, I am uh, the director of the cancer research UK clinical trials unit. And so where we've seen our biggest impact is in the clinical trials arena. Um, the, Our our clinical trials unit, the entire 200 members of staff are all home working, so we're maintaining the support for clinical trials in terms of uh, um, data management, monitoring remotely um, from a home base. But the challenge has been keeping uh, new recruitment into clinical trials at the hospitals. That's where it's been mostly limited and that's because research staff are being redeployed to manage uh, uh, and cover other areas when uh, when staff are either sick themselves or having to be self-isolated because family members are sick. So we have seen a fall in recruitment onto clinical trials. And also, we're not able to open new clinical trials at the moment. The only trials we can open are those that are directly related to research in COVID. So the impact, uh, patients are still receiving normal care. And if they're on trial, we're managing to keep those patients continuing to get trial treatment um, and monitoring their safety and collecting data but there will be a delay in recruitment of of new patients. And we don't know what the impact of that will be long term. Uh, We need to have a look at the, we'll obviously have to extend uh, patient recruitment to be able to hit the research targets so we can answer the questions. Um, And we have not yet got full reassurance about the funding aspects of that yet.
1: Yes, that's something that we're definitely um, concerned about. Um, What about Carol, how are things at the NCI in terms of research, and then we'll go to Mark. To talk about research.
5: So thank you, um, Tim. Uh, so at the uh, intramural program uh, or the Center for Cancer uh, Research at the National Cancer Institute, um, we have essentially we, we treat predominantly patients who are relapsed or refractory, and so. Um, For these patients, we also have a large presence in natural history of rare cancers as well. So our natural history studies have essentially really um, closed down to minimal maintenance and anything that can can be done by telephone is being done that way. Now for our protocols, um, we have several CAR-T therapy programs that are for relapse and refractory patients. CD22, um, CD19, 22, CD 22 as well as a CD33. And those are, are still open and accruing patients. And so there is an effort for, um, uh, to balance patient risk in coming versus benefit from the potentials of the therapies. And so uh, on the other hand, from the preparation of clinical trials, the programs are still going forward with all the preparation for new and innovative trials, um, we're really hopeful that we will be able to open trials um, should things begin to abate.
1: And um, what about funding? I guess you're intramurally funded, but have you heard anything about uh, well, government funding for trials? So
5: um, I listened to um, uh, Ned Sharpless, who spoke to the Board of Scientific Counselors a couple of weeks ago. And there is really a big emphasis in the NCI to really focus on cancer as the major um, target. And there is a large push for childhood cancer. Clearly the um, cancer, uh, childhood cancer data initiative funding is moving forward and that's well set for the next five years. Um, I do believe that uh, we, are, we do have a presence in the COVID-19 uh, Um, Field and these studies are evolving. I think one of the major studies that's going to happen is um, a change of uh, looking at antibodies. So uh, we had a large presence looking at antibodies for HPV um, from the vaccine trials. And so this whole effort in the Frederick National Laboratories is gonna be moved over to beginning to evaluate um, the development of antibodies to um, SARS-CoV-2.
1: I guess that brings up the question of whether a lot of the efforts and funds that are being used for uh, this new COVID, these new COVID type studies, is that diverting uh, effort, energy, money away from other programs like childhood cancer research? Do we think there's going to be an impact uh, in that way that might be negative in our field? I mean, we obviously need to solve the problem of the virus for sure. So that has to be a priority, but
5: So it's, I can't really comment on how the funding situation is going to evolve. It's still really too early to know. Um, I I always like, I'm I'm fairly optimistic in these kinds of things. And I actually was started as a scientist um, during the AIDS um, epidemic. And so I saw the big rush of um, funding that switched from cancer to HIV. But I do believe that the The study of the immune system that the HIV studies engendered and the intensity of that kind of study and information that evolved is really paying dividends now. So I do believe any um, research that we do that uh, enables us to understand normal physiology and normal immune responses. And clearly we're seeing that the immune response to this virus is quite different uh, among different individuals will certainly um, be informative as we bring it to bear for our children who clearly have different responses to their cancers as well from an immunological
1: point of view. That's a great point. Another question I had for you before we move on to mark is uh, many of your patients travel uh, long distances to come to the NCI for these relapse type studies. Are you seeing a problem with that, a decrease? Is there, what barriers and challenges are there now in this new environment? And how do you, uh, are you doing more things remotely as a consequence? And will that maybe change the way you practice in the future?
5: Right, so, so we do travel patients um, to our children's inn and they stay there before they come to the clinic to be treated. And um, in situations where um, we can perhaps um, utilize the investigational drugs and have them, we are trying to get waivers from, our, um, from the FDA to enable us to uh, perhaps give these drugs uh, at remote locations so the patients don't have to travel. Um, but we definitely are, you know, this is a, an issue that many patients don't want to travel. But then again, this is why we are really taking the patients who in some ways that hopefully have a benefit from our therapies, but they're refractory to most other therapies.
1: That's great. So Mark, you're in a unique position. You're a few years ahead of Peter and transitioning from an academic medical center to the industry and i um, curious about your perspective from either of those uh, viewpoints, but certainly from the industry perspective about how this whole new environment is impacting clinical research, what the impact is gonna be on missed um, studies, on protocols and missing data. Are we worried about that? And what what sort of things are going through your mind?
6: Yeah, you know, it's it's complicated, of course. Um, You know, the basic research, the discovery of new molecules. Obviously, it takes a long time from the identification of a molecule to turning it into a drug. And most of the laboratory research has kind of been suspended, uh, both in academic and in most pharmaceutical labs around the world, in order to reduce the high density of people that really need to um, take part in that. So I think there is going to be a downstream effect. As you heard, what many uh, both academic and pharmaceutical companies are doing is shifting their portfolios as much as, as possible to see whether there are potential therapeutic options for COVID-19. Uh, I do agree that learning about some of that may uh, have significant impact for general medicine, and therefore I don't consider it a complete loss of, uh, of potential information, but the likelihood that some of the more basic pediatric oncology mechanisms um, that some of that research will be put on hold as we refocus efforts, I think, is a bit of a, is a reality. Obviously, on the clinical side, as you've heard, if there is a clinical trial that's open and running, if patients are on therapy, I think all of the systems are in place to ensure that those patients continue to receive therapy. I think where we are going to see a problem is, for example, in order to open a new trial, as many of the um, other speakers have noted, you know, it requires a large number of of people both in the office, in the clinic, in the administrative places uh, in order to get uh, patients coming in to access some of these uh, new potential therapies. And as we kind of think about how do we protect a patient, how do we minimize their risk of catching a um, contagious and potentially fatal disease, while at the same time not ignoring the reason that they need to come into clinic in the first place is that they have a cancer that itself is not a, a trivial issue, and it's this balance of risk and benefit and, and so there isn't a single answer. Uh, not every trial will close there or will, not every trial will be prevented from uh, opening some of them that are considered more important or maybe of benefit, I think are going to continue to main priority, particularly if the potential benefits of those outweigh the potential risks. I think therapies that require a lot of patient contact are gonna be de-emphasized to those that may allow a little more remote or uh, less active interaction. Uh, Therapies that, for example, weaken your immune system um, would intuitively cause a little more concern, um, particularly as you're trying to fight an infection. Uh, therapies that, for example, damage the lung or heart, which is where many of the problems for the COVID-19 patients are, might be considered at higher risk and therefore harder to move forward. And it's going to be that very delicate balance of all of those issues that um, doesn't provide a single answer. It's a kind of case-by-case, circumstance-by-circumstance evaluation that will allow us to optimize the care for kids while protecting them from the unnecessary exposure and potential impact of of catching COVID-19.
1: So are you actively writing amendments or or revising protocols that are in process in terms of trying to accommodate some of these issues?
6: Yes, absolutely. Um, And again, uh, this is really an industry-wide effort is... Um, you know, deferring uh, simple follow-ups to phone follow-ups, and so amending protocols that allow those kinds of things in places where it's appropriate, not in every circumstance, you know, an oral medication that instead of coming into the clinic to pick it up, that can be delivered at home. Um, So there are absolutely circumstances where we're trying to do everything we can to maintain the integrity of the study while protecting the patients. That's obviously not gonna be possible with every type of treatment. And so again, in a case-by-case circumstance, there are some, uh, particularly some of the newer studies that are highly experimental. We haven't even figured out what dose to use yet or what some of the known toxicities will be. And if we don't know all of the toxicities because the drugs are too new, suddenly exposing patients that may also be being exposed to an infection raises greater concern. Some of those will be put on hold as we try to get over the hump of of this infection, and then get those uh, going a little bit later. Which means there is going to be some realistic de- delay in certain circumstances, uh, as need be. Yeah,
1: and I guess from our own experience, uh, am- more amendments is causing more work for our regulatory team, who are already trying to minimize uh, their work. And so it's sort of this cycle of, of issues that I think are delaying things. Pam, I'm wondering. I, Tim, could I could
2: I just want to jump yeah. in for like, one minute, if I can, and just to emphasize, and certainly in the for children with relapse or refractory cancer and what we've seen and not just children I'd say all patients with relapse refractory cancer but certainly children both the NCI and the FDA um, have really uh, made pretty dramatic moves to accommodate the current challenge so things that would normally have taken you know major efforts to say oh we can't do this we can't do that including shipping investigational drugs so families don't have to come into the hospital and so on and so forth. So there are a lot of accommodations being made for patients currently participating or just enrolling on investigational studies and generally in pediatrics uh, for the investigational drugs It's usually relapse or ref- refractory. So that has been very reassuring to see that, no, you can do this, note to file, you don't necessarily have to amend, there's, there's flexibility. The, so I just wanna make sure it's, it's not all bureaucracy that is descending. In fact, people are behind the bureaucracy and, and are making uh, uh, accommodations, because uh, they know that, uh, especially for patients with life-threatening illnesses, um, shutting down is, is, is not a good option.
1: So, just continuing on that topic of sort of what the burdens are and so forth, um, does anybody have any sense of the regulatory environment and will there be delays in approvals or um, that sort of thing? Maybe, Peter, that'd be a good one for you as well.
2: Well, what I can say is, you know, one of the silver linings that might emerge is I think right now there are well over 600 protocols for patients with COVID infection or at risk for COVID infection. And some of those, and I, you know, certainly where I am, but uh, some of those were put up within two weeks. Um, so, when something truly becomes a priority, um, you can move it faster. So I, I'm hoping there will be lessons that uh, that come out of this. That well, in certain areas, can we be more efficient? Can we, uh, can can we move it faster? Um, with that said, you know, it wasn't difficult to prioritize for anyone that uh, in the midst of a pandemic with high mortality, um, we can't do business as, as usual. But I, I'm hoping that there's some lessons learned that there are other also life-threatening diseases where maybe we can start trying to prioritize and become more efficient.
6: And Tim, could I just add to that? Please do. I have to say that uh, it has been remarkable um, although it's hard to get new things started because of the the kind of village that it takes to get something brand new up and going, Um, I would say I spend more time now on the phone with regulatory authorities because a lot of that stuff can be done from home. And so I would say a lot of the regulatory stuff has gone much smoother, in part because nobody's traveling. Schedules have been relatively easy to coordinate, and so both for the European Union uh, the EMA as well as at the FDA, um, their responsiveness, I have to say, has in many ways been remarkable, uh, not just in terms of things that are COVID-19 related, but in terms of keeping all of the other things for uh, cancer trials going. Um, so in that sense, it's been a bright spot.
1: That's good to hear. And both of you just answered the long question that was typed into the box about can, if everything's being able to move so fast with COVID, can we take those lessons learned and and continuum. I guess my fear would be, once this is all over, we're all going to fall back in the same old habits, but um, I guess time will tell with that. Um, One of the other potential silver linings is, um, and Carol touched on this just a little bit, in terms of uh, new immunotherapies, new things coming out, new knowledge that we might learn from COVID with the explosion of immunotherapies in in cancer. uh, Do we think, or um, might there be, uh, you know, new, New avenues of research or new discoveries that could be cross-applicable. And um, uh, you, anybody have any thoughts about that, Jeff? Maybe.
3: Uh, sure. So, I, I, Carol hit it right on the head. The the immune response uh, is definitely something that warrants further investigation between pediatrics and adults. Uh, In particular, we know there's an immune response that occurs when a child's born um, and then as they grow older and get vaccinated and then as they get in their teen years and then as an adult, there's lots of different changes that occurs in the immune response um, such that uh, we do know with COVID, for example, that infants less than one year old have a high risk of severe disease uh, versus those children who are greater in age but less than 12. Um, So it it begs the question immunologically what's happening in those kids. Um, The second point is we do know that kids generally have a different inflammatory response. In other words, inflammation is the way that you get rid of of viruses. And they have a different inflammatory response than adults. And that inflammatory response actually can be helpful for a viral response. Uh, In addition to that, kids are exposed to a lot of different viruses and and there are things called endemic coronaviruses. In other words, common coronaviruses that are not SARS related that kids get exposed to a lot. So in other words, is there, are their immune systems primed uh, with regards to this virus? Uh, and then lastly, the way that the virus actually w- w- works in the body. So we're, we're finding out that the virus causes damage to skin cells in the body that uh, line blood vessels, for example. So uh, there's a process in bone marrow transplant in patients that I take care of uh, that there is damage to that same skin layer that causes um, micro blood clots to occur. And we're finding the same thing that happens uh, in, in COVID-19. Um, and we even are using some of the same therapies in those patients who have severe COVID-19 that we use in a transplant center or we use, or in a setting rather, or we use in the CAR-T setting, the chimeric antigen receptor T-cell setting, drug called tocilizumab, which, uh, which blocks one of these inflammatory cytokines. So there's lots that we can learn right now from COVID that definitely applies in terms of, of viral immune response and, and also in terms of cancer responses. So there's a significant overlap between the inflammatory response to infection and the inflammatory response to cancer. And we may actually be able to discover uh, another way of fighting cancer based upon uh, immune knowledge and discovery that we have for for COVID 19.
1: We can all hope for those silver linings. Does any of you else, others, have comments about that topic?
4: Yeah, if I could come in on that, and I completely agree with what Jeff is saying. That- The the investigation of the inflammasome, as it's called, uh, in in the context of COVID is absolutely fascinating. And a a lot of the clinical trials, treatment trials for COVID-19 at the moment are repurposing anti-cancer drugs that target that inflammatory pathway. Some of the uh, anti-cancer drugs that we're investigating to treat different sorts of leukemias are being investigated in clinical trials. But it's really, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that hits the press about a particular drug that may or may not be useful in COVID-19. I think we have to reiterate that these drugs need to be properly investigated in trials to demonstrate the benefit because a lot of patients with COVID-19 recover anyway. And I think we have to be wary of the magic drug that helps a few anecdotal patients. We need to be sure that that was a genuine effect because of the drug and that can only be properly investigated in trials. But the other opportunity we need to take is with the cohorts of patients that we have at the moment, um, both uh, with cancer and cancer with COVID, th- this is the opportunity to collect all the data we can on those patients and ideally um, you know, blood samples as well, so that we can retrospectively do quite a lot of research to understand the processes of the interaction between patients with cancer, the treatment they're on and the virus. And we're seeing this, um, we've got a national uh, registry of, of childhood cancer patients with COVID in the UK, and I know St. Jude's have launched one, uh, an international one, and, and li- aligning those registries with good um, sample collections to do future research will really help answer some of the questions that Jeff was alluding to.
1: Pam, since we've zoomed back to the UK, um, there's been two questions typed uh, about international travel, either, you know, between countries within Europe, or if someone's on a trial in America wanting to know whether drugs can get shipped to them, or how does that impact, uh, how has COVID been impacting their participation in clinical trials in terms of international issues and travel? Do you have any
4: comments about that? Yeah, so the, the, the issue, I mean, on the, the issue of shipping drugs hasn't been uh, prohibitive. We've managed to get access to drugs. There's been no problem with transfer across borders from uh, within the COVID-19 pandemic. The issue of patients moving across borders is a much more difficult one. Um, And I I certainly have had personal experience of a patient who was supposed to be traveling to another country for treatment that we had to reconsider that and the patient received treatment back in the UK uh, instead. Um, So yes, cross-border travel is is really, really challenging at the moment and particularly uh, between countries in Europe, as you know, France, Germany, Italy, all the borders are locked down. Having said that, um, I'm aware that patients in, for example, Italy were accepted in Germany, um, where they ran out of bed spaces in Italy because of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. And that was done on a case-by-case basis, where German centres happen to have enough uh, beds to take them. Um, but it isn't a general uh, a cross-border opening at all at the moment. So it, it really is challenging. And for clinical trials, um, it, I wouldn't say it was impossible but there'd have to be a very strong case to to break the border uh, restrictions at the moment
1: and could you talk a little bit more you touched on about the there's a question written about uh the registries of covid and cancer that sort of thing and maybe if anyone else has information on those as well could chime in
4: so if i can speak to it, we've got something called the coronavirus cancer project in the uk it, it opened initially um for adult cancer patients. So it's capturing all cancer patients that were tested positive for COVID, just basic uh, data on uh, their demographics, the treatment they'd received and the outcomes. Um, and then we've managed to launch in the last uh, three weeks a paediatric version of that, and it's now open in every UK paediatric cancer centre. It naturally will only capture the patients that are in hospital, so we can't say it'll give us a good epidemiology of of COVID in the community, but what it is showing is that the patients receiving, uh, who are on chemotherapy, who are also COVID-19 positive, for the most part are not developing major symptoms, and are are being discharged from hospital after uh, their usual uh, uh, antibiotic therapy that that they would normally receive if they get uh, get fevers. But it's early days to really analyze that. Um, There may be others on the line that can speak more to the St. Jude's project, but the International Society of Paediatric Oncology, SIOP, worked with St. Jude's to launch um, a very similar uh, database. Um, what's really nice is that certainly our registry and the St. Jude's ones are completely compatible. So we hope to be able to do data merging and, and joint analysis ultimately. But the St. Jude's one's open to, uh, internationally to any country who wants to record patients um, who've been diagnosed with COVID, a child with, with cancer who've been diagnosed with COVID. So we can internationally get an idea of what's happened to these patients in terms of their, their outcomes.
1: Let's spend some time talking about funding. Uh, we all know that funding is key for childhood cancer research, uh, not just from the government, but from private foundations like Solving Kids Cancer and others, uh, as well as um, charities and individual donors, etc. cetera. Uh, certainly, everyone's fin- personal finances are being impacted, and I can personally say academic centers, I know from our experience, are, are losing money during this time, significant amounts of of, of revenue. Um, and I guess I'm wondering what people's thoughts are or predictions of what uh, is happening now and will happen in the future in terms of an impact on, on pediatric cancer research with these changes in the funding environment. From an industry's perspective as well, are you guys losing money in industry at the moment and is that causing challenges? Obviously with stock market changes, you probably are. I don't know, Mark, do you have any comments from that side?
6: Yeah, I mean, I can't really speak to the kind of, you know, larger economics of, remember that, uh, you know, uh, much, I think Peter would say the same, you know, we also make, you know, blood pressure medicines, heart medicines, those kinds of things. So it's not just a cancer issue. Um, Again, the research has been impacted. I think there's no question we're hearing delays. You know, we even opened the discussion today about patients that are kind of delaying, actually, you know, getting treated, I think that would be not just for cancer, maybe even less so for cancer, but certainly for people with high blood pressure, probably delaying some of those appointments. Um, So I think there is going to be an overall general impact. Um, Again, the bigger question of, and I think Peter said it at the beginning, it's not going to be where one day, you know, in the front page of the newspaper is COVID is done. This is probably going to be an evolution of slowly decreasing incidence of infection, uh, but I don't think it's just going to suddenly end. And under those circumstances, figuring out how we're going to transition um, both the farm industry, the academic uh, centers um, to begin to ramp back up the things that have been put on hold. Um, I think there's going to be some impact, but hopefully um, it, you know, we will adapt to this. I think that's the one thing that we've always learned. And as was intimated by a couple of others, we're actually gonna learn some things out of this. You know, Pam's point about, we ought to be collecting as much information now so that if this ever happens again, we're that much more prepared for understanding what it means, how to deal with it, how to minimize its impact. And so that we ought to see this as an opportunity, not just as a tragedy.
2: So, not being an economist, but that's never stopped me from, from <laughs> offering an opinion. Um, you know, I think I'll, I think there is gonna be an impact on research. Um, I, I don't know how big an impact, but everything ultimately is gonna be tied to what, uh, in the US, what the US economy does and how devastated the US economy is and how devastated other economies are in the global economy. I, I don't think we can escape the reality that uh, the level of funding support from the government or even in uh, the private sector is all gonna be impacted by um, what's happening in, in our economy. What I don't think any of us would dare to predict because we don't know is you know, how big an impact uh, is, is it gonna be. So I, I do think that's a reality. We haven't seen um, econ- an economy like this, obviously, uh, not in my lifetime, um, and I think in most of our lifetimes. I, I think everyone will hesitate to to venture a guess as far as how long and to what depth uh, the the impact
3: will be.
4: I think a major um, area that's going to be impacted is the charitable sector. Um, it obviously as Peter says, as the economy is tightened, people being able to donate to charities will be reduced, and even something as simple as you know we had the London Marathon was supposed to be run on Sunday, uh, as many, many other major marathons it 's a massive fundraiser for charities, and the income loss from an event like that being cancelled is phenomenal and Cancer Research UK is one of the biggest cha- uh, um, single cancer charities in in the UK and possibly in Europe. And they are predicting a 25% reduction in fundraising, um, which is, you know, a fin- some, I think they've estimated something like 44 million loss. Um, and as a consequence, they have already mm-hmm. cut existing grants. So grants that have already been awarded, they are cutting uh, this year's award by 5% to most projects. Um, and they've delayed the announcement of new funding calls until the autumn, until they see their their funding position. So obviously that's affects all cancer research, but in amongst that childhood cancer research, inevitably is going to be impacted. And I think what's happening in Cancer Research UK is probably being reflected in, in a lot of charities.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a challenging times for sure. And I guess our jobs are to try to minimize the negative impact of all that as best as possible. I'm not sure how to do that. Uh, so happy uh, to, to um, you know entertain ideas, but I know we're talking about uh, now that we're starting in the next week or two to reinstitute ele- some elective s- surgeries on a slow basis, I think we're talking about how to uh, re-engage in research uh, a bit um, with uh, you know all the typical social distancing measures in place, but can we start going back into the lab and doing things on a limited basis with shift work, et cetera. I think we it behooves us to try to be creative about how to um, minimize the impact. Uh, And I think uh, we only have about four minutes before we were designated to to wrap up and we'll probably give everyone uh, a chance to say some final words so you can start thinking about sort of what your key points to drive home for for, uh, families are, but um, the final topic that we were suggested, uh, to talk about was sort of translational research. Um, we talked about databases and, but a lot of things are being put on hold that are not considered urgent or life-saving sample collection, things like that. Um, what do we think is going to happen to those? Uh, I guess, uh, the term gone into hibernation has been used. Um, do we worry about the impact of that? Is there any way to catch up on that? what's going to be the the loss? And does anybody have any thoughts about that? Carol.
5: Well, so I I really wanted to to tell people, I think that I can speak for you all as well. Um, Even though we're home, I think we're busier than ever. I do think that we're trying to motivate and keep engaged our colleagues and students and trainees who are working. And I think this extra time has enabled us to look into new areas, and you know, there's so much, um, you know, genomic data out there that I do think there's there's so much that a translational scientist can still be doing, even though they're not in the lab shaking tubes. So I definitely believe that that we'll come back to the laboratory, um, you know, energized and with new insights gained from this kind of hibernation period, where in fact. We're not really hibernating, but I think we're really seeing things in a slower, different way.
4: That's true, Carol. Um, one of my other roles is I'm Director of the Institute of Cats and Genomic Sciences. And when the university uh, decided to remove everybody from campus, there was a lot of uh, hair pulling and beating a chest from the laboratory scientists on how they were going to survive without their test tubes. Um, and in fact, they, they have been amazing, uh, owner. They've kept their research groups going by, by Zoom or whatever internet connection that they're using. And they've redirected their energy into getting those papers written that they've been meaning to get written for a while. Um, really reviewing the literature on the work in which they're the area in which they're interested so that when they go back into the labs they're doing what they call you know the killer experiments rather than just churning through the work but they've had a chance to sit back and go actually what is it we're trying to achieve in the And when the grants are being compressed and the timelines to achieve the research when they get back into the labs is much tighter, they're being much more focused about what they're going to deliver when they get back into the labs. Now, I'm not saying that there hasn't been a consequence and there will be um, casualties in terms of, of research projects that don't get completed or funding that doesn't get renewed. But actually, I think that it, it's been an interesting exercise for, uh, for the researchers to, to really think about what matters in, in their laboratory research. and And A lot of them are fundamental scientists that are um, looking very much at the basic steps in biology. And I've noticed a shift to their interest in disease processes, how what they're doing is more relevant to disease processes. And I think it's brought it much more, the the fundamental biologists are actually looking more towards the translation of biology because they're actually seeing a very visual impact of what happens in diseases. I I found that it's potentially a positive outcome. (laughs)
1: Well, thank you for all those comments. There's one last question, but it relates more to big picture issues. So I think what we'll, I'll, I'll read it uh, or I'll summarize it and then we can go around into the room with our, our final sort of closing remarks before I turn it back over to Jonathan. Um, and the question is written about, we, we've discussed it a little bit, but when we get on the other side of this pandemic, how do we collectively keep the momentum going um, and not, you know, and how do we minimize the, the, the loss time and effort uh, through COVID, but what really is the biggest risk this person is asking in terms of childhood cancer research? Is it the loss of funding? Is it what else do we need to be aware of to work and overcome? So if you have any final statements you want to make and you could work those answers in, that would be great. And we'll go around the virtual room from left to right and top to bottom from my screen, which may be different from your screen, but I've got Mark up first and then Carol.
6: Well, I mean, uh, you know, obviously, first and foremost is you just want everybody to stay safe. And and in these trying times, I know we're all going a little bit stir crazy. Uh, at the same time, there's a benefit to this. Uh, I think, you know, dampening the spread of the disease that gives us an opportunity to learn. You heard about many of the initiatives that are going on now to try and, and find a solution to this. Um, you know, like everything, there's all you can, if you work hard enough at it, I think you can always find a silver lining that while there's no question, research is impacted, Uh, the opportunity for drug discovery I think has been impacted. Um, We're gonna learn things about infection, about the immune system, about how to modulate the immune system. If you can teach it how to control a virus, maybe you can teach it how to control a cancer. So uh, I'm, you know, I, I think as pediatric oncologists, we tend to be optimists at heart. And I think we have to kind of see that opportunity here. And while there will be some disruption, um, there will be some kind of delay i 'm you know we are ready to pick up and and take off what I would say is for me, the most important issue and Tim, I think you raised this earlier we 've learned some things about how to do some stuff better that you know in terms of reducing inconvenience, time, travel cost for families for circumstances, are we willing to continue to learn from those and adapt to them? Or as you said, are we all just going to go back to the way it was? Cause we're kind of looking for things that were once comfortable. My hope is that we can learn the lessons from this so that we actually come out kind of better and stronger by the time this is done.
1: A positive note. I like it. Carol to you.
5: Yeah. So I think Mark kind of touched on many of the things I also believe. I do think that sometimes for us change is very difficult and, um, I'm of the age now where I actually like to embrace change because I do think this this um, change can lead to new growth. And I think we just need to continue to lobby hard and keep focused on, you know, our primary mission, which is to, you know, alleviate the suffering and deaths due to, you know, childhood cancer. And I think with that kind of vision, we can continue to maintain the the uh, impetus that we had going into uh, pre COVID-19.
1: Sounds great. Jeff, then Pam, then we'll finish with Peter.
3: Well, I'm a little bit philosophical on this, but uh, I, I think that um, there's one thing or several things that time has taught us, and that is we are an adaptable race, right? I mean, when you look at our past and you look towards the future and you look to our present, we have adapted over quite a lot of different challenges uh, in terms of our existence. I think the second thing is, you know, when we look and we look at the night sky, we see stars and we we're this little itty bitty planet, um, like a blip in in time and a a speck of dust, but somehow uh, there's all of us on this webinar. uh, And the reason why we're on this webinar is because the whole purpose of life is, is to create an impact and a positive impact. And there's, there's lots that we have talked about that can create such a positive impact in the, in the lives of others, in particular in the lives of, of a child with cancer. And so, I, you know, we'll, we'll figure this out because we always do. Uh, and and uh, we, we have that drive to make it better. And I think that that, as long as we don't lose focus on that drive, uh, then uh, we will get through this and, and we will come out better in the end.
4: Keep the faith.
1: Thanks, Jeff. Pam?
4: Not sure I can be quite so philosophical, but um, yeah, we've been the uh, last four months, if I can put it, distracted with COVID-19 and for all good reasons, um, because the impact it's had globally. But childhood cancer is still here and, and all of us interested in research uh, and, and treatment in childhood cancer are still here. We've not gone into a different area of research just because COVID-19 has come along. It's taught us a lot and it's taught us a lot scientifically. It's taught us a lot about bureaucracy and administration and how to, to, to uh, really move around it or move through it. Um, but ultimately those of us who work in this arena um, don't need to be re-motivated after this. We still are motivated and that's going to continue There's one thing I hope will change, um, not to do with research um, specifically, is that we've stopped travelling, and that's got to have been better for the environment. You know, we've seen evidence of this. And and I really hope we reconsider how we do big meetings in the future, and how much we need to be whizzing around the world for these meetings, because these Zoom uh, 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 chats are very productive. And uh, we've got used to being able to do it that way, so I hope that's one thing we do continue
1: in the future. That's a great point. Um, I agree. It's been remarkable to see the changes. How human behavior can affect our planet. And in fact, there's one last question about that. And can we use this pandemic to explain to those not directly affected what the impacts on children and families are? Isolation, worry about germs, etc. It's a good point. That. Uh, I know we've seen the incidence of other infections drop dramatically in our hospital, like RSV, because of the social isolation. But we're going to give the final word to Peter.
2: Well, just reacting to you know what what everyone has offered already, which I think is is on target. Pam, I think Zoom will either be our best friend or our worst enemy <laughs> by the time uh, by the time this is uh, this is over. But it is true, our ability to be productive um, is much greater today than it would have been a decade ago. Uh, I think it would have been, been much more difficult. Um, a couple of brief points. One is uh, this, for first with pediatric oncologists, we are probably amongst the most optimistic group of people that you come across. Um, and, uh, We are always looking uh, to do better and we are inspired by the children and and families that we are privileged to care for. The community uh, in pediatric oncology, I think, has evolved and continues to become stronger and more focused, um, certainly since when I began uh, and even in the last five to 10 years. And I can't uh, underemphasize how important having that community is because as as others have noted, um, each and every day, our families are are facing life-threatening diseases. And when we layer upon it that the challenges that this pandemic has has brought, it takes it to to new levels. With that said, um, our community has faced actually much greater barriers and hurdles in the past. Um, It was only about 70 years ago that children with cancer actually received any treatment uh, because everyone believed it was uniformly fatal and couldn't be treated. And we have made tremendous progress, but the barriers that our predecessors had to overcome were, were formidable, and I think in many respects are gonna be greater than the barriers that COVID-19 brings us uh, today. We know it's gonna be challenging times and an evolution, and Jeff others have said, we will adapt. The mission is too important. I think um, the important message is to get out early in the community is do not hesitate, as Pam says, if you're concerned about your child's health to contact uh, your provider. Um, The systems are there, we're ready. We don't wanna have uh, indirect challenges because of the concerns. With that said, I I do wanna thank you, Tim, and the others because uh, this community is so essential and I I think that we're gonna have advocacy messages emerge over the upcoming months as we see
7: things evolve.
1: Well said, thank you. Uh, Jonathan, thank you for co-hosting this. I'll turn it back to you for final comments.
7: So first and foremost, And thank you for an amazing discussion. And and, uh, Dr. Adamson, what you just said summed up so much of, of, I think, what we need to hear in the community as advocates. Uh, I'm Jonathan Agan, the Executive Director of the Max Cure Foundation, along with Solving Kids Cancer. We're honored and thrilled to be hosting this webinar today. Uh, And Dr. Kripe, thank you so much for moderating and for leading this discussion it was uh really something that we're privileged in the community and parents and and advocates to be able to have to be able to have access to you know the the top thought leaders in the pediatric cancer community Um, thank you to all the panelists for sharing your expertise today these are really unique times to say the least Um, they are stressful and producing a tremendous amount of anxiety for people of all walks of life. But for those of us in the childhood cancer community who spend our days either caring for children, having a child with cancer, or some of us who've lost children and now focus on uh, doing the work in the community as advocates, uh, having access to be able to have this discussion is is fantastic. Um, If there are any questions that didn't get answered, We'll try and work it out so that we can get everybody answers to anything that might be on their mind. Um, just a reminder that this discussion will be archived and will be posted on Solving Kids Cancer's website, Max Cure Foundation's website, uh, as well as Facebook pages, and I'm assuming places like the Childhood uh, CAC2, the Coalition Against Childhood Cancer. Um, final words that I wanted to leave everybody with here today. Uh, so, you know, again, thank you to everyone for joining us in this robust discussion. Um, this is a community that has found a way to always fight through the challenges that we face and for foundations such as solving kids cancer and the max Cure foundation, we do what we can so that we can continue to push the research forward. And one of the questions that came in at the end about uh, not losing momentum is so on point for those of us on the other side in the community. And it's our charge to find a way. We have always done a lot with a little. We've always been faced with trying to scrimp and push ahead and raise every single penny that we can to fund research. We found ways to pass legislation to keep the momentum going. We're gonna face challenges. The budget's gonna face challenges either from the federal government with respect to NCI and how NIH is funded in 2021 and beyond, but there are new opportunities that we have to seek to leverage as a community. We have to come together more as organizations utilizing the resources that we have in order to keep the momentum going. And that's on all of our shoulders in the advocacy community and those of us in foundations that do this work on a daily basis. Again, thank you to everybody for participating today. Thank you for everyone who joined us. Again, if you have questions, please try and submit them. Uh, you can submit them to either myself at jonathan at uh, and We'll get them uh, answered. Thanks again. Thank
1: you so much. It's been fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thank you, everybody.
5: Thanks a lot. Let's see. How do I get?